Hi there. It's me, Laura Wasser, the divorce attorney and the founder of It's Over Easy, the online divorce service. I've been practicing family law for over 20 years, and I've worked on thousands of divorces, shepherding people through what may be one of the most terrifying times in their lives. Along the way, I often have to remind people to lower their expectations. When dealing with matters of the heart, rules simply don't apply because all's fair in love and war. So welcome to the All's Fair podcast. Fasten your seatbelts and let's go. All's Fair in Love and War is a 16th century proverb attributed to John Lilly, English writer, poet, dramatist, and courtier. Best known during his lifetime for his books, Euphues, The Anatomy of Wit. We named this podcast All's Fair to explore all matters of the heart and the body because we believe that today's modern families and the evolution of romantic and sexual relationships are ripe for interesting discussions. They also make good reading, and I love to read. I am a voracious reader. So next to hosting this podcast, reading books with my book club is one of my top five most favorite activities. Today, my gift to you is a mashup of both. Consider this an invitation to my book club, and joining the club today is my first guest who wrote the first book we're going to discuss called Nobody's Victim, which Esquire magazine called one of the best books of last summer. It's a shocker of a page turner, equal parts memoir, true crime, and manifesto. This must read for anybody with an internet connection written by a Brooklyn-based victim's rights attorney whose law firm specializes in representing victims of, and I like this, psychos, stalkers, pervs, and trolls. Welcome to All's Fair, Carrie Goldberg. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So tell us a little bit. I mean, I've read the book, Nobody's Victim, but tell us how you got started in this. You had your own kind of horrific experience, correct? Oh, oh my God. It was not a voluntary education into this line of work. I've been a lawyer for about six years, but working with like elderly people who were being exploited mm -hmm. and who needed guardianships or in California's conservatorships. And I was recently divorced and dating for the first time in like a decade in New York City. And like so many of my client stories, mine started with, you know, meeting somebody on the Internet right. uh, through a dating app. And we had this kind of whirlwind relationship. And after about six weeks or so it became like really really controlling and scary and he was really jealous and when we broke up four months in he told me that he was going to spend the rest of his life destroying mine and he proceeded to send me text messages saying that there was no hole deep enough that i could dig to escape him he sent emails and Facebook messages to my friends, my family, my coworkers, saying that I was a whore, that I had STDs, that I was pregnant, none of which was true. And he also started filing false police reports about me. But one of the things that was kind of the most pernicious was that he would send me emails with pictures that I had consensually sent him and videos, um, sexual ones, and then tell me that he had blind copied judges and attorneys that uh, I was up against in, in my professional life. I mean, I was, I was horrified. I was humiliated. I was scared for my life. He was making physical threats to me as well. He had tried to break into my apartment. It was, I had lived a very normal life and I'd never been like fearful of, of like my own safety. 
and my entire life was just was turned upside down. I I moved. I was arrested uh, because of these like completely bogus charges. And when I tried to get a restraining order against him, the judge told me that he had a First Amendment right to be um, expressing himself this way. And I was like, what? What the fuck? <laughs> okay. I was, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, it's his right to free speech to express himself like through pictures of my genitals and, and sending those around. Because I, I wanted a restraining order that not only protected me from him physically, but also would stop him from harassing my friends and family, spreading these lies on the internet and distributing these, these pictures. So the judge said no, like he couldn't stop him from expressing himself this way. And when I did a little research, I realized that there were no no laws protecting me. Like um, at the time, there were only like three states that had criminal, what we now call revenge porn laws. What, tell and me what that is. What are revenge porn laws? Give me an example. So it's it, they're basically laws that criminalize the non-consensual distribution of sexually graphic pictures and images. So just as my ex had done to me, a lot of my clients received threats from, from their exes that they're going to send their, their naked pictures to everybody in their life if they don't do X, Y, Z, if they don't come back to them, if they don't have sex with them. Or sometimes they actually you know, make good on those threats and post them on the internet. There used to be a lot of revenge porn sites, but still just general social media sites like Facebook and, and Twitter and Instagram, offenders will sometimes you know, post these the most intimate images of of a person, pictures that they received consensually but are distributing non-consensually. Okay. And over the last like four years or so, we went from having three states with these laws to having forty six. And New York just became the forty sixth state. And by the time we got a law passed in New York, California was already on its like third version of it. But at the time I was going through this, like I didn't know anything about this universe. I couldn't find a lawyer who kind of was at that intersection of intimate partner violence and internet law and First Amendment law and criminal law. So when I finally got through my ordeal, which took six months before I got my final order of protection, I got the charges against me dropped, he pled guilty. And I basically just you know, decided that I was going to stop everything in my life and try to start a law firm and and become the lawyer that I needed. And so right. that's sort of the summary of <laughs> of how I got into this. And so I started a law firm and it was just me for a couple of years and you can probably relate to this just the the roller coaster <laughs> ride of starting a law firm and building a law firm is is pretty intense. Yes. And and that never eases up. It turned out that there were a lot of other people that also needed this kind of help. And within just five years, we've grown to 13 employees. And there are 90% female, yes. 90% female. We just hired our, our second man. <laughs> and <laughs> but yeah, 90% female clients, 90% female staff. But just so it's clear our, to our listeners, this yeah. happens to guys too, correct? I mean, this is not only a kind of female victim situation. Oh, absolutely. And the revenge porn that we talked about happens, you know, 
across all cultures, genders, gender identities, financial brackets, religions, races. It's we've seen everybody, you know, from 13-year-olds to 72-year-olds that have become victims. But also my my firm is is more expansive than that where we're dealing with people who've, you know, been horrifically stalked not just with naked pictures but in one of our most high-profile cases, our our client Matthew, he was impersonated. This is the Grinder case, again. right? On Grinder, yes. Yeah. Okay, tell us about um, that one. Okay, get ready. Okay, so our client, like in late 2016, a man visited my office. His name is Matthew, 33 years old. He was a waiter slash model slash former reality star, really, you know, handsome built man. And he was at his just wits end because he'd broken up with somebody and after a year and a half relationship and that man he'd broken up with his ex-boyfriend decided that he, like my ex-boyfriend, was going to spend the rest of his life destroying Matthews. And he created fake profiles on Grindr, the gay dating app, and would direct strangers to Matthew's job at a restaurant and to his home. And this was in person. So a lot of people talk about, you know, cyber stalking and stuff as if it's like a computer crime. (laughs) These are not computer crimes. These happen to real people in real life. And in this case, Matthew was visited by strangers who thought he wanted to have sex with them over 1,200 times over a several-month period. As many as... Like 23 people would come in person a day, you know, knock on his door or follow him into the bathroom at the restaurant where he worked, thinking that he had set up the date. And sometimes his ex-boyfriend would say that it would direct message with the strangers and say, oh, you know, I've got this rape fantasy. So even if I tell you to go away, like, don't. (laughs) It was like a sort of a, a life and death situation. Right. Not sort of. It actually was because sometimes the ex would say that Matthew had crystal meth to share or oh. or he would say super like racist or homophobic things to incite violence so that when these guys right. came to his home, they would be all like ready to, to beat him up. There were a couple incidents where he and his roommate were attacked. They had to call the police over and over again. It was like there was nothing about his life that was normal. It was completely overrun by these constant visitors and he didn't know who would come next he didn't know if the next person would have a gun or would actually you know force their way into his home to right to to rape him i mean it so was, rather than just going after the ex though you guys went after grinder correct well first he did everything in his power to go after the ex he got a restraining order he reported it to the police 10 times the guy would just keep violating their restraining order and and our prosecutors were doing nothing to help. And so when he finally came to us, all of this had already happened. And he was like, what else is there to do? I just, I feel like I just want to kill myself. And at the time I had worked with a lot of tech companies helping to get revenge porn bans on, on their platform. So I was like in this like super like cocky, arrogant mode where I was like, oh, I'll just call Grinders general counsel. <laughs> I got this. I am your like knight in shining armor. No problem. And so <laughs> I tried to do that and they ignored me. I wrote them letters. 
they ignored that. And so then I was like, oh, okay, Matthew, we're in this together because Cut they to are Glenn Close, Fatal Attraction. I will not be ignored. Oh, I will not be ignored. So true. <laughs> and so I was like, well, what if we got a restraining order against Grindr and, you know, got a judge to say that this, this guy could not use their platform? And you know, usually you get restraining orders against people, but whatever, we'll try it. And lo and behold, the judge granted us this this order that required that grinder discontinue this guy from using their platform. And that was amazing to us. And we served it on Grinder and they ignored it. And more men kept coming. And what was their reasoning, if you know, for ignoring it? Because we know other dating websites and other apps that have very willingly blocked people that have caused problems in the past. Um, explain, I mean, even what's that one sugar daddies, right. if you actually are really right. like a hooker, then the you can't be on one. it. Right. Yeah. So what mm-hmm. was their reasoning? They just had so much great, you know, business from this guy or what? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, obviously they, you know, like ultimately he was a good customer. Companies. Clearly. I mean, he was, <laughs> he was a but... good customer. I mean, these free dating apps, what are they actually? They're, they're advertising companies. They're, you know, like every time somebody uses their app, they're, they're like looking at the advertising and, and it's more revenue for the company. So this guy was an amazing customer, but I don't think that was really what was causing them to ignore it. When we finally got them to show up in federal court, Grinders lawyers said that they didn't have to respond to Matthew because they were protected by this federal law that went into effect in 1996 called the Communications Decency Act, which basically says that tech companies cannot be held liable for the content their users contribute. Hmm. And we were like, no, Grinder, listen, you saw our complaint. We were really, really careful. We knew about this law. We did not sue you for any of the content, you know, provided by the ex-boyfriend. We didn't sue you for defamation or or for obscenity or anything related to the words that this guy used. We're suing you, you know, for being negligent and for not enforcing your own terms of service that say that you will exclude a user. Mm-hmm. And Grinder said, well, not only are we protected by this this federal law that immunizes all tech companies for their users' content, but we also don't have the technical ability to exclude a user. And I was like, how you do? My, my co-counsel and I are like, whoa, 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 whoa. You have a dating app. The main feature, you've patented this feature where you actually can geolocate where people live. I mean, that's ultra hazardous. And it's an absolute arithmetic certainty that if you have a dating app with geolocating technology, it will sometimes be abused by stalkers, by predators, by child molesters. And if you've not designed into your product a way to exclude abusive users, then you've released into the stream of commerce a dangerous product. And so we ran back to my office and we amended the complaint and we made this into a product liability case. And it was a rather novel approach. And the judge told us we were full of shit and dismissed the entire case. Okay. <laughs> and we appealed it to the Second Circuit and they told us we were also full of shit. And we ultimately petitioned to the Supreme Court of the U.S. Um, because this was a pretty novel case. And for the court to dismiss it, I mean, we're getting, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but the Supreme Court has never ruled on this particular law, which mm-hmm. basically is what protects 
all of our tech companies. And it's why they've all grown into these behemoths that they have, because we individuals don't have the right to hold them liable. And therefore, they don't have any of the market forces on them to have developed like safe products you know, that, that actually like take care of their users. Um, but the Supreme court ultimately two weeks ago told us that they weren't going to be reviewing the case. And so we're now in a deadlock where the issue is now coming up in Congress and and we're testifying there, but (laughs) that is the grinder case. (laughs) Okay. I like the, I like the grinder case. I like that you're doing this. Let's back up a little bit because I want to talk for a moment about your book. I know we talked about your situation And it's not hard for me to believe, but I don't know that the listeners will really understand beyond you and Matthew, how unbelievably common this is to happen to people in terms of anybody who's online for any period of time or anything. Tell us about why you decided to write the book and a little bit what it's about, because it's in this day and age when people are so nuts, like, I mean, I kept, couldn't help thinking to myself, well, God, what did you, you dated this guy for six weeks. What did you do that set off such a reaction in this psycho? Or would that have happened to anybody that he dated because he is just so mentally ill? Yeah, it definitely wasn't because I was so amazing. It was because it's a character trait that we see over and over and over again, which is, Laura, exactly why I wrote my book, because... You know, at this point, we've seen hundreds of different victims of predators and all of our clients. I mean, the, the two things that all of our clients have in common is that they either are currently under attack or they've been attacked. And there's almost always a component of, of violence or sexual violence or gender gender based violence in these cases. And but we realized in my office that we were seeing the same patterns over and over and over again, as if there was a playbook. And so part of the reason I wanted to write the book was to taxonomize the kinds of offenders that we kept seeing. And we ultimately kind of categorized them into four different groups, uh, psychos, assholes, pervs, and trolls. And the book has, it takes, you know, some of our our cases to kind of show, tell the story of the quintessential cases in in those categories. But also, I mean, I want to be able to demystify for people what these types of attacks look like so that if they or their friend is ever on the the wrong side of one of these assholes, that, you know, that they'll know what to expect. They'll be able to see the, the patterns because if you're being stalked or harassed, it's like you're always waiting for the next shoe to drop and it's a constant state of anxiety. You don't know, you know, like a lot of these people are, are very creative. Um, you know, I've had clients who, you know, they're impersonated and their their ex-boyfriend sends bomb threats to Jewish community centers all over the place or oh impersonates them and sends child pornography in their names or or somehow hacks into the the dog walking app where they're you know making part-time money and you know tells one of their clients that they just killed the cat you know there's like but horrible but these are always and and i'll i'll say this too a stream of obsessiveness yeah often i mean one of the other things that i think people naturally think my dad when i was growing up basically had two pieces of advice that he like hammered into me for my entire childhood life one was don't pack it if you can't carry it, meaning like don't I'm not carrying your luggage for you. And the other is more importantly, don't let anyone take naked pictures of you. No naked pictures. So like even in my 
longest term, you know, six year relationship, no naked pictures. But even if I'm sitting here thinking this when you're talking about revenge porn, they'll just take a picture, a naked picture of someone else and say it's you. I mean, there's no way around this kind of a sick fuck mind, correct? Yeah. And it's not enough to say don't take naked pictures because I mean, there's nothing at this in this day and age where our phones are you know, with not just within arm's reach, but like usually in our hands. It's like, that's not really like, it's it's not perverse behavior to, to express yourself that way. But the th- thing is that even if you've not, like I have clients who, yeah, who, as you said, are like their head is photoshopped onto a porn star's right. body or deep fakes is now a thing where people are u- using machine learning and artificial intelligence to get a computer to learn your face so that it can even more persuasively look like like that porn is real right um and we've also had you know really sad cases where clients were photoed without their consent or knowledge as well as sexually assaulted and photographed or videoed without their consent knowledge and those went viral so the problem is more widespread than than just the the act of taking taking the picture right You said you were going to break it down and demystify it. So I want the folks listening to really kind of, because you are without question the expert on this. And it's, I think, (laughs) for better or worse, something that you don't think about until it's happening to you. So, Yeah. So I want to tell you about the four categories of offenders that we see over and over again at my firm. Psychos, assholes, pervs, and trolls. So starting with the psycho, that is the, the situation where an offender, usually it's an ex, has just given up everything in their life to destroy their targets. And usually these people don't have jobs, they don't have meaningful relationships with family members, they don't really have anything that's anchoring them to society. And so they don't necessarily feel like they have anything to lose. They're not worried about breaking the law. They're so kind of far gone and ill with their obsession and their need to kind of balance the scales and punish the victim for whatever they've done, which usually is just breaking up with them, that they just become hellbent and obsessive with destroying the other person's life. And so examples of that are like what I described with with Matthew's case, where his offender, after their relationship ended, was just like, okay, well, you've left me. I'm now I've now got nothing and I'm going to just spend hours a day creating these fake profiles on Grindr and sending people to your home to hopefully rape you. And that takes dedication. It takes focus. It takes tenacity. Commitment. These are, it takes commitment. And this was over a six month period of time and he knew it was illegal. He had restraining orders against him and it just didn't matter. And so these are, the, the psycho is somebody who just has lost all perspective. And how is that different from an asshole? So the asshole is kind of... They have perspective. The, they have... They're on the same we, spectrum, clearly. okay? <laughs> right. They have some perspective, and they're not going to... Dis, they're not... They're just on the other end of the spectrum. They're more moderate. So they'll do something. They'll do a horrible act of, of revenge porn or... You know, sometimes in some of our cases, we have schools that are assholes where they get a report that, you know, one of our clients was sexually assaulted and they behave unethically and and, you know, accuse our client of of consensually 
um, having sex at school, <laughs> something like that. Right. You know, these, these are the Title IX know, violations. These are the yeah, like you know, yeah. client. So so sometimes administrations are assholes, but basically it's when there's an act that is kind of singular. Okay. And a bad act that's singular. That that's our asshole. And then but, pervs. But, Pervs are pervs, clearly, right? Pervs, yeah, pervs are pervs. Pervs are, uh, they're the ones who are doing sextortion. Usually there's there's some sort of offline sexual motivation, gratification, power imbalance. They are the Harvey Weinsteins, the sex predators. We have a lot of cases that do involve computers where offenders will impersonate a kid and then seduce a kid. You know, maybe they meet like playing online games or in a chat room and the trust of, of the of the target over a period of time and then ultimately get them to share a naked image. Right. And and then blackmail them with the image. And, you know, you, your, our clients in these cases are sometimes like 13, 14, 15 years old and they're being blackmailed by an adult who basically uses the threat of distributing the single image to coerce them into sharing more and more and more images and they get progressively more graphic and the demands are raised. And, uh, and that's different from a troll how? It's much sicker than our typical troll. That's sextortion. It's, it's, it's such an incredibly gruesome situation where you're making a kid become like a sex slave. So moving over to troll, that's somebody mm-hmm. who's yeah. usually also acting anonymously, usually through the, the internet and, and sometimes in mobs. So usually it's in more of a public platform, like right. on Twitter, where suddenly there's just a mob of people going after somebody, usually for ideological reasons. You've said something that the far right hates. You've said something horrible about Trump. You've say like Kathy Griffin, you know, with the, he- with her, the bloody head, with, right. the, with the head. You know, she then was was the target of of all, you know, trolls. They were doxing her. They were, you know, threatening her all anonymously. And the issue with trolls is that because they're anonymous and because they they act in in mobs, it's really, really difficult to get any action against them because you can't really go to law enforcers and say, hey, there are a thousand anonymous people that are threatening to behead me and say they know where I live, you know. Can you get the the social media channels, though, to do anything? Well, that's exactly what the best solution is. Because, I mean, law enforcement's going to be like, listen, we don't want to be investigating people that might be on the other side of the world. And even if we get, you know, criminal charges against one person who's threatening to kill you. What about the other 999? So really the platforms are the best place and the only place really to get action. But again, as we talked about with the Grindr case, there's absolutely no liability if the platforms don't help. You're going to change that. I have a feeling you're going to change that. I hope so. At least, you know, at least there needs to be injunctive relief where people should be able to say, listen, these people are destroying my life. They're sending my naked pictures. They're threatening my my kids and my family. And they're showing up at my doorstep. At the very least, I need you to say that 
they can't use your your platform right. anymore right. To, to do this because these platforms are monetizing every single user. Well, and that's and, what what's one of the great things about your book is that it really is like Laura always says, knowledge is power. You're arming people with knowledge so that they know what they can do to avoid the situation. And bringing something that I think, like I said, as with divorce, until it's happening to you, you probably don't think about it very often. And what I loved about what you said earlier, Carrie, is you became the lawyer that you needed when this happened to you. And that's awesome. It really is. And I do think that <laughs> you, you will change the way people approach this. I know things are going on in Congress right now. I We wish you the best of luck in getting this done. And tell our listeners, in addition to purchasing Nobody's Victim, how they can reach you, please. Find me on Twitter, C.A. Goldberg Law. And my website is cagoldberglaw.com. Got it. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm going to look um, you up next time I'm in Brooklyn and um, keep yes. up the great, great work. Thank you. It's, I'm so excited to be here. I'm Laura Wasser, and this is the All's Fair podcast. On today's show, we're flipping through the pages of some of my favorite reads this month, including Nobody's Victim, the part memoir, part true crime, part manifesto written by victims rights attorney Carrie Goldberg. I also want to recommend Have You Seen Luis Velez by Catherine Ryan Hyde, The Dutch House by Ann Patchett, The Dream Daughter by Diane Chamberlain, and Jitterbug Perfume, one of my oldest, longest favorites by Tom Robbins. And my next guests have written an aspirational and inspirational piece of nonfiction that is very close to my heart called Our Happy Divorce, which is a true life embodiment of what we talk about when we refer to the evolution of dissolution is my sincere hope that listeners considering a divorce, if you have kids or not, you'll take a page from this book, literally and figuratively, absorb and practice a new and better approach to divorce. So without much further ado, allow me to introduce you to my guests, Nikki DeBartolo and Benjamin Helfand. Welcome, guys. Thank you for having us, Laura. We are very psyched to have you here on All's Fair. Your book is pretty much what I practice in my family law practice in creating It's Over Easy, trying to educate and then allow people to emulate couples like you who have gone through a divorce but chosen to remain a family, chosen to you know, amicably co-parent and chosen to remain friends and partners in other things, even if you're not going to bed together every night. So yeah, <laughs> thank God for that. Thank right. you. Exactly. Which again, <laughs> makes you appreciate the other stuff too. It really wasn't that exciting Sorry. to begin with. But, uh-oh. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> so I, you guys I are think ba- there's a sequel <laughs> to that book. <laughs> you guys are based in Tampa and you flew to LA to do press to promote the book. So you've just come from KTLA? We did. Awesome. How was that? Painless. It good. was painless. Yeah, uh, they, they were easy on us. So. Good. Okay, well, good. get ready. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> so, Nikki, tell us a little bit about you. Well, I am divorced from Ben. Yes. As you know, I am remarried to the sheriff of our town, which is a really interesting thing. It went from night and day here. <laughs> the, cr- <laughs> the, cr- the outlaw well, to the sheriff. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I only have one child, Asher, who is my child with Ben. Right. He's 16 years old and the most wonderful child. Mm. But yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Cool. And well, actually, just so that you guys know, Asher wrote an article for the It's Over Easy blog. It will be posting right around the time that we are um, going to be dropping this episode of All's Fair. And it has a child's perspective of parents going through divorce in a much, much better way. But still, what he's what he went through. Ben, tell us about you. Uh, well, I am a relatively decent human being. 
I uh, was born and raised in uh, San Francisco, and, and I moved out to Tampa w- with Nikki um, and her family, um, and it didn't work out. We got divorced. Um, I am remarried to my wife, Nadia. We have two other kids, and, and so Asher sort of has the best of both worlds. He, he can be at my house and have brothers and sisters, and it's mayhem, and then he can go for the little R&R at Nikki's where he's the only child. Um, we live five houses down from each other, um, so Asher has the freedom. We, it, the street's name is Longfellow. We call him the Longfellow Creeper because <laughs> he walks between houses and fishes the docks and at night. And all of a sudden, I'll be watching TV and he'll just pop in at eleven o'clock at night. And that's and that's good. No, that's great. We like that's that. Great. We like that. Yes. So you went to Cal. That's my alma mater. And you had Go a, Bears. Do you have a degree in African American history? I do. What made you decide to pursue that? Because we're fascinated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it, it, it's, I've, uh, it was a history major, and it was one of those things where when I got to school, I was majoring in classes that started after 12 p.m., mm-hmm. right? And so uh, instead of the class, I'd look at what time it started. Yes, um, yes. And eventually by my junior year, the counselor, uh, uh, my counselor said, it's time to declare major. And so I looked at all of the classes and what was the clearest path to uh, to graduation uh eight years later i graduated with a degree in uh, african-american history so there you go. i had some time off for bad behavior uh <laughs> and 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 get myself sober but besides that yeah so i did I graduated with that and and, I, and i'm really happy that i did it helped it's helped me in business it's helped me in history is and it's helped me you know actually in, in the divorce because history has a tendency to repeat itself uh-huh. and if nothing changes nothing changes and, and you learn from it and i learned from it mm-hmm. i think you, that was being sober that helped you in our divorce well yeah but 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 you know my parents divorce was not a happy divorce right and it was the war of the roses and 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 that we were used as blocking blocking and tackling tools and 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 so on so forth so when it came time for my own divorce it took a while to get there but i realized what i didn't want to do and i didn't want to repeat history right i mean it's so interesting why as you guys know love the study of human nature which is why i do what i do Mm. for a living and why i do this podcast and i see people whose either parents have gone through miserable divorces saying I just am not going to repeat that. I'm not going to do what they did to me. I'm not going to repeat those mistakes or making exactly the same things. Like mm-hmm. they say the children of abusers will either abuse their kids or be hyper aware of anything that could be abusive or, or perceived that way. So you took a different path, which is amazing. And I love that you were conscious enough to realize that that was going on. I, I wish I could say that it was from the beginning because uh, it wasn't, you know, at, at, at the end of- You guys have to see Nikki's face. <laughs> Well, I was ready to put my boxing gloves on. Yeah, I mean, we had the boxing gloves on, uh, literally, uh, and I had hired a, a lawyer to look at the prenup, and he came up with an action plan. I looked at it as how to destroy Nikki and how to make this thing messy and how to bring it into the public arena because of her family. And um, I was just so blinded, and I think that happens a lot. Uh, at least it happened for me, and it also helped me look at my parents that they didn't intentionally do it, but I think we get so blinded by these negative resentment, fear, right. anger, that we don't really see the consequences of those behaviors. And I was headed down that route, and it wasn't until I started reading this thing and I got two or three pages into this action plan, and that's when my parents hit me. And, and that's when that's when everything turned? Uh, it, it, it took, I mean, it took some time. Uh, I, I had to go and actually take... Uh, um, an inventory of myself and, mm-hmm. and takes, I called Nikki after that plane ride. I said, I just need some time to work on myself and, and to find, um, I've been blessed enough to, to, uh, be sober 
uh, clean and sober. I think it was probably 15 years at the time, 16 years. And, and so I had a foundation of what to do. And mm-hmm. I knew that in every relationship where I have a resentment, I have a pardon. Mm-hmm. And so I called Nikki and I said, I need some time. I need to take a step back. I need to start getting back to basics. And one of those basics was taking an inventory. Mm-hmm. So I took an inventory and it wasn't, when I worked with this guy, it wasn't, anytime I started talking about Nikki, he goes, no, this isn't what this is about. This is about you and your behavior. Um, and anyways, make a long story short, too late. But uh, I read it, too late. I read the part of it's reading the inventory to him. Mm-hmm. And as I was reading it, as I got done, I realized that, you know what? I wouldn't want to be married to me either. I was a miserable person. And, and, and so that, the turning point was then I called Nikki and I asked her to coffee. And I first told her that I loved her and that I was sorry for my part in ending the relationship. And then she in turn apologized to me. And which I, th- I don't do which very we, often. Which we've I, never that done. That might be the first time I ever did it. And the last time. So special apology. It was yeah. very special. But but so the foundation of what we did was you know, and Nikki had um, done some work. She'd been through therapy too at that time, and so you know, I think the turning points when we both realized we had an equal part in ending the relationship, mm-hmm. and that we needed to put the past behind us and forgive each other and forgive. Not only I forgave Nikki, but I forgave myself because mm-hmm. there's there's a shame in any marriage, and, sure. and, and Nikki, you know, you talk about that a lot. I do. I talk about that a lot because my parents have been married for 52 years. Right. That's another thing. When people come and they their parents are still married, so you don't have really any experience with divorce and you are afraid you're letting them down and why couldn't you do what they've done, mm-hmm. taking complete no consideration of whether they actually are happy, not happy, whatever. Right. So was, did, your, did you lawyer up right from the beginning? I had friends that were lawyers, okay. which kind of helped guide me. And I mean, I kind of knew the direction he was going. Because hearsay told me the direction he was going. Right. Allegedly. So I. To use your lawyer terms. So I was going to be ready for this. Okay. I mean, and, you know, my dad's one of those people that wants to try to fix everything, Mm -hmm. wants to try to make everything better. So, and being the youngest of three girls, he was. And still is most protective over me. Mm-hmm. I can say oh, yours. I can say that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he was going to do everything in his power to help me, like, make sure I got through this. Right. Okay. Right. Whatever that meant. Whatever that meant. Well, well even killing Ben. Well, yeah. Yeah. Right. That was on the table, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, but but they're Used to both. Say where, let's go to Las Vegas or something. <laughs> and this is, I think, so difficult. I don't mean to speak, and, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. But they're both fixers. Nikki, you know, immediate reaction to anything is to fix it. And, and, and your dad's the same way. Same exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and so when the marriage, you know, I had made the decision to end the marriage, her immediate response was, let's fix, let's fix it. Like, what can we do to make this better? But in the back of my head, I was like, there's no way I really want to be married to this. No offense, but there's- This is my get just, out of jail free card. Right. <laughs> Why aren't I taking it? <laughs> right. But as a young woman, I was more so petrified. And right? also for Asher. Right. I mean, you realize- But I was petrified to- you know, break up my marriage and do that to my child, but at the same time, be a single mom. Mm-hmm. Even though I was, I knew somehow I was capable of doing it, but I was still petrified. Sure. I mean, I think that's every girl's like 
they, every girl gets afraid of, By the can way, I do this? Guys too, right. which are, can yeah. I do this? Will I be able to see my kids? You know, how is this going to work? Who's going to take care of me? You know, they say men are much more likely to remarry sooner thereafter than women. So I think the fear and the transition period are the things that, re- and the shame, yeah. as you said, mm-hmm. keep us away from it. So, so when he came to you and said, I'm sorry, you must have been taken aback for a moment. At that point, did you, in either one of you, when you said, whoa, this is, this is a side of him slash her I haven't seen before. Whatever. Did you think then, like, well, maybe we should get back together? Or was it, I'm no. sorry I was that way, but let's take a different path towards our divorce. This wasn't a reconciliation. This no, was just, not by any means. let's be friends and do it a different way. Yes? Yes, it was like, let's, let's take a look at what we've been doing and let's figure out how we can get to a better point of us. I mean, we started, it was the same thing that all couples, that a lot of couples go through where you're dropping the child off, where you don't look at each other, you don't talk to each other. So we're like, we can't continue to do this. Okay, right. so I think that's really important to hear those listeners because I think sometimes we present these things as a fait accompli. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't always mm-hmm. this good. They weren't sitting there writing our happy divorce and flying around After to news stations right. at the beginning. No, right. this is this takes a little bit of time. But I do say to people when they're in my office and when I'm speaking you know, to large groups that are going through this, you will be in a different place a year from now, whatever that different place is, but it better be a different place. You cannot still be in this anger, fear, whatever. You have to have moved on. And generally, you will be able to make eye contact curbside or even walk up to the door or even come in and have a coffee or Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Because one interesting thing, and I'm sure I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know, is you guys have something in common that is the most important being in the world to each of you. Right. Yeah. And nobody else has that, you know, except your parents maybe a little bit, but nobody else feels that strongly about Asher besides the right. two of you. No childcare provider, no teacher, nobody. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, what we were doing or what, what the plan, you know, the, the, the other path that I was going down that I see so much and it happened to my parents and I see it with everybody is the parents, and I don't mean to be dramatic, but it is because I've been in that situation is where you're feeding your kids poison, hoping the other one dies. Right. You know, right. or, or lighting yourself on fire, hoping the other one dies of smoke inhalation, or, or however you want to put it. But but the but the the the, the point of that you made is so important that this was not, you know, that coffee shop. We cleared up the wreckage. All good. All good. Yeah. Let's go to Africa together. Let's go on family vacations together. No, it, it it took years. I mean, and then you throw in new relationships new partners and then you get you know the the ego of, of another man being around your son well, i was son. gonna ask about that so so did everyone go to africa last summer or just the three of you just the three of us <laughs> now how does that now and people will ask me that because i've traveled with my exes mm-hmm. but i definitely would have a difficult time i think now explaining to my current partner that i was going to be going on vacation with one of my exes so how does that work for your wife and your husband so when and this is the the thing is our guiding light our, our principal our north star in this whole thing we decided at that coffee shop was every decision we were going to make what is what's best for asher it wasn't what's best for nikki it wasn't what's best for ben uh we didn't have and i hate to say this but it, there was no social media back when we got divorced uh you know it was only 12 years ago but there was no so there's not the resources that there was so we sort of just figured this out ourselves so we got we met you know kiss keep it simple stupid mm-hmm. what's best for asher and, and so that included bringing new people into our lives. Is that they had to? I don't, my wife, I, I, I can almost you know with 
100% certainty, and I know that's sort of an oxymoron, but say that she would not be in my life if she didn't commit to what we were trying to do. So when I went to her, and, and obviously they were invited. We didn't like say we're we going to just alone. go to Africa and done. But, but he, and they said, no, we're going to hang back. You're the sheriff and your wife with the two other kids were like, no, you go have a good time in Africa. Well, it was a logistics thing. So he's the sheriff, obviously taking two, right. you know, over two weeks off is I a mean, big Tampa deal. Tampa would have just gone straight yeah. to hell. Right. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Looting everywhere. The streets would have been crazy. But, and my wife's, you know, raising two small kids. Uh, she's going back into uh, therapy or being a therapist. She's not going back into therapy. <laughs> she's going to need to go she's back going into therapy. To, nothing wrong with therapy. She, no, but nope. she's married to me, so eventually she'll be on the couch. But um, she still is. <laughs> but so she's starting her practice. And so when I told her, it wasn't, oh, hell no, you're not going to Africa with your ex-wife. Are you effing out of your mind? It was Asher will love that. Okay. So, okay. so they right. have bought in, and I hate to use the word buy-in because it sounds so apathetic. But Committed. Committed. They're, they're, committed. they're committed to it. That they have put themselves, Asher, before themselves too, in, in front of their egos, in front of their like even questioning whether Nikki and I would be frolicking in the bush in Africa. There's no frolicking you, in no, any no bush in, in no, the bush. In Africa. No, okay. no, no, no. Good to know. Nothing happened no. in the bush. <laughs> so, so the, you know, they are committed. Uh, uh, they, they are true. Have developed into this, and, and it's one of those things again. Like you said, it developed. Like you know, we it wasn't overnight. It wasn't yeah. overnight. I knew Chad. He was a friend. When uh, he arrested you all those times. <laughs> right, every time I got pulled over. No, but he, you know, we knew him when we were married. So, you know, and then, you know, he comes into Nikki's life. And at first, you know, like I said, in the beginning, it was like, oh, my God, this guy, like, he, he's around my son. He's, he's you know, uh, uh, just didn't wait for the body to get <laughs> cold before he moved in. But An analogy. It, right. And then so we were, we were at uh, Asher's baseball games, and I was coaching. We walk off and... Ash would run over to Chad and give him a hug, and and my insides are tearing each other apart, and I'm like this, you know, just everything. But in, I'm literally saying to myself, "What's best for Ash?" And, and if I look at it through an egoless lens, he's a good guy. Asher loves him. Nikki and him are definitely in love and meant to be together. So that's the lens I need to look through. If I look through the other lens, you know, it's all negative. Right. It's all whatever. So he, look, he's a great guy. Nikki and Nadia. We're best friends. Yeah. We really are. And it's, I mean, it's nice. I mean, it took us a little bit to get there because right. I had to go through the the mommy thing where, who's this woman that's putting my son to bed at night? Right. Who's, but there's a, there's a good story about Asher oh, and Nadia. Yeah. I called him. He was probably four or five. I called him to say goodnight to him one he night. He was at my house. Yeah. And I had not met Nadia yet. But Asher knew this woman who's been hanging out at the house, hanging out with him. And so I'm saying goodnight to him. And he said, hey, mom do you know Nadia? And I said, I know who she is, but I've not met her yet. He goes, hold on a second. You need to talk to her. And that was his way of going, hey, listen. I need you, you to be okay with this. Figure this yeah. out. Uh -huh. Like, I'm it's smart time. enough to know this, so it's time for you two to be friends. Asher sounds like a rock star, he by is the way. A rock star. So when people say to you, and I'm sure they do, well, if you care so much about your kid, why didn't you just stay together? Because that would have ruined our kid even more. Right. Okay. They're smart. Right, right. They're it, smart. They know. They realize when there is tension. And I do believe that kids would rather see a happy mm. parent, even if that parent's alone or with somebody else, right. than a miserable parent right. married to their other parent. And, I think that's really true. Part of my inventory, too, was around 
me as a father, and I always thought that I was this great father, but part of that inventory was I really wasn't that good of a father. I was just playing one on TV, you know, and, and showing up and putting most of the responsibility on Nikki and, and, you know, whomever was babysitting him. So at the end of the divorce and, and I was living on my own, it sort of forced me into being a better dad, mm-hmm. a better father. I find that that happens a lot with parents, particularly the guys. Yeah. I mm-hmm. think that when they, when you're all living together under one roof, mom kind of becomes the care provider and if dads are left on their own, they actually do step up and do the care providing that they maybe weren't doing when the relationship was in a mm-hmm. different format. Mm-hmm. What made you guys, all these years later, decide to write the book? Well, it's taken us, what, four years to write this book? It has. Because it- I've told him to stick it up his ass a few times <laughs> during the process of writing the book. book. Oh yeah. Yes. No, no, wow. Not, not the copy painful. you have. Okay. Yeah, not the copy you have. But, but we, get, we get in a fight. I mean, we, we argue yeah. like, uh, all the time. But we argue like brother and sister now. Right. right. And so she, we'd get in a fight and she said, I'm not doing your effing book. You can shove it up your, you know, where. So then we wouldn't talk for a while. And, and, and so, you know, doing your, well, uh, all right, let's do it. Uh, collaborating with your wife, uh, to, or ex-wife rather, to do a book is an interesting process. Um, but, but we, uh, had just been social media came and we would, you know, share story. We, we put out a Christmas card every year together. We started doing that about four years ago, um, as our modern family. Um, and and so everybody, everybody. Everybody. Okay. I like that. That's like, that's what my Thanksgiving looks like. Right. And that's, so, so everything, get a bigger house, (laughs) you know, and the advent of social media. So we put it out there not to show off anything, but just, this is our life. And this is how it looks. This is what our family looks like to us. Mm -hmm. Right. And at the beginning, like the first one that went out, people were like, excuse me, like, what is this? Like some freaky swinger. This is just like, everybody just has to. Get on board. Let me ask you a question, Nikki. So your your family's so high profile. Um, can you say who they are? My father used to own the 49ers. Right. Yeah. So they're a pretty well-known yeah. family, and they're also really conservative, or traditional is a better word, not conservative. So how do they react to that Christmas card? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, I think that they all took a little, like, it, it took everybody a little getting used to, because I think people, even like, you know, your mom and dad were sort of like, what is this? Like, why, why is, why are they still coming over for Thanksgiving? And why are you trying to have Christmas? Like, why are you like, what is this? Like, if you didn't, weren't meant to be married, why are you still together? But they've all sort of, I mean, I I actually think my parents really like this guy. So like they're, they're happy because they see the way Asher is like flourishing having right. this kind right. of relationship yeah and in the beginning it's it was right. weird and they like him way more than they like either one of us it was the <laughs> evolution of dissolution <laughs> right Laura. it was a little new um to, to everybody so that's how you know on social media people say like you guys have such a great story you have you you know you need to get this out there and and like i talked about in my recovery i've made the biggest changes in my life through relatedness and the power of relatedness and, and you know I, I went to many people with a lot of initials behind their name that told me I had a troubles. I had trouble with drugs and alcohol, but it wasn't until I spoke with another alcoholic or another addict who I knew had been to hell um, was I willing to take a look at it. So this is just our story, right? And 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 everybody I'm sure who's gone through the divorce can relate to some of those feelings, some of that stuff we're going through. So it's just how we did it, you know. It's just our story. Um, people do it differently, as you know, Laura. I mean, there, there's there, this is just our way of doing it, the, and the net result is a happy divorce. Right, and I think that's important for people to keep in mind, which is this is their story. You have your own story. Take 
pieces from mm-hmm. this story. Mm-hmm. Use it if it works for you. If it doesn't, don't use those pieces. Take other pieces. But I do. I think that creating what our families are going to look like. And again, we talk about this all the time on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Having a tribe, having a support group. It takes a village. That whole idea. And most importantly, more people to love my kid. It must be right. nice That's to it. know that Nadia's there if it you got to be so somewhere nice. else because he's got another person there that loves him. Right. Yeah. What the hell could possibly be wrong with that? Right. Nothing. Yeah, how can you, you argue get, with as that? As soon as like, my ego got over it, I'm like, you know what? This right. is a great thing. The, the most, uh, the, the moment where I sort of knew for me that this thing was uh, working was um, Chad asked me to coffee one day. Um, and, and we went to coffee, actually the same coffee shop where Nikki and I had sort of made amends. Right. And not only at that, but we had worked out our whole divorce at that coffee shop and then gave it to the lawyers and said, draw this up. We've come to this conclusion after you know six or seven meetings. But anyways, he asked me to coffee and he said, you know, first of all, he made amends for you know any illusion that he was you know, moved in or had any, you know, while we were married, had any sort of, you know, feelings towards Nikki and it just sort of happened. But then he said, I want to ask her to marry me and I want your permission. And, uh, and you said, well, I said, I said, I said, are you sure? Cause I can tell you some stories. No, I, oh, <laughs> oh, oh, but, not at all. No, she's an angel. Yeah, right? I can tell. Yeah. Gorgeous. Too. Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> Except for this makeup they put on the other No, you she, she got her hair did, yeah, so that her horns are, are oh, covered up. So what uh, did you say? So that, First of all, did you, you. were you taken aback? Um, I, I, no, because immediately I, I thought to myself, this is the guy I and, want married. And huge my, props to him, right? Absolutely. For having the balls and the lack of ego to come to you and ask you. And you didn't know. I didn't know. Okay. And, and so, look, if I had said no, he still was going to do course. it. Right. But it, it, at, at that point... I, like this is the best thing that a guy comes into my ex-wife's life, loves her, gonna make her happy, but more importantly, my son loves him. He's good to my kid. He's a good man. What basis do I have to hate this guy? Right, right. Except for ego, right? right? And that's the only thing that could get in the way. So I, I thanked him uh, and, and said, of course, you know. Uh, uh, I thanked him, uh, packed, packed it up, and said, take her, <laughs> take her, please. No, I did say thank you. Um, now, how, at this point, how long had you guys been divorced? Uh, oh, chrono- has you four, been married? I'm going to be married ten years. This so, year. f- four years, three years. Okay, yeah. okay. So, you know, again, guys, it doesn't happen immediately. Right. It's an evolution. What happens in each of your homes? I guess if it has to do with Asher, I mean, these are things that I think about. So if Asher has some kind of a disciplinary issue, something happens at school or whatever, I can't imagine that would happen with a 16-year-old. Never. Creeping on Longfellow. (laughs) So, so, but he lives in each of your homes. Does that necessitate that all four adults have to be on the same page? You guys obviously set the stage, but what happens, for example, if Nadia says, I got two little kids here. I can't have vaping. You guys may handle this in a different way, but I'm not okay with it. Like, how do you mm-hmm. deal with that kind Good of question. conflict when it happens and he's in between your two homes and maybe you two feel differently about it than your new spouses? I would say if it's a big ticket item, yes, that it's usually what we say goes. But I mean, for, for the most part, things like things with him growing up we all sort of feel the same way right which is it's been re- that part of it's been really easy yeah co-parenting but, is is interesting cuz but Nick- it's, we make sure that we i mean even if we 
parent a little differently, yes. we make sure the rules are basically the same at both and, houses. And that's one thing that, you know, co-parenting, whether Nikki and I were married or divorced, we were going to have different views, I think, on raising our kid. or okay. different, Right? So the different views doesn't change. And, and But the big, like Nikki said, I love that, big ticket items. We talk because we have a great relationship, we communicate, and we come to a decision. And sometimes Nikki and Chad are involved in that decision. We've had family- Nadia. Nadia. I do that all the time, by the way. <laughs> I'm sure that makes For, Nadia yeah, very happy. happy. <laughs> she does, you know, and that's the other thing. She's never gotten mad at me once about it. And I do it all the time. But um, we, we've had meetings, family meetings with Chad, Nadia, Nikki and me, uh, and talking about something maybe happened at school or whatever, and we come to a consensus. So okay, but you guys do, do all meet together, yeah. Yeah. yes, mm-hmm. and you respect your new partners, spouses. Okay, I think that's important for people to know. Yeah. Look, this isn't easy, guys, but it's so much better. There's no question that this is a better outcome. And, 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 and just so the difference, I can tell you, from when my parents were divorced, they didn't talk. Right. And, and being sort of a criminal mind that I was at oh, a very early huge. age, yeah. oh, I, I, I quickly went from this is the worst feeling, you know, this is awful, this is terrible, to this is really good. Right. How does this work for me? Exactly. <laughs> so when, you know, my da- they were, I figured out pretty quickly they weren't parenting for parent of the year. They were parenting from a place of favorite parent or trying to get the favorite parent. Sure. Award. Which so, is really hard, disciplinary speaking, because oh, yeah. if you're the one that's, does, that's letting them stay out later or being on their device or whatever it is, they want to be at your house more often. Yeah. Right. Like, but de- this is where group texting comes in very handy. Mm. Yes. Now we're Technology. like, listen, here's the text message. We're all on it. We all need to know where you're going, when you're going, and who you're going with. Now. Now. Yeah. Like, this is the way it works. So now more people also to answer to for your teenagers. Exactly. I like it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right, Nikki and Ben, thank you so much for making your time and your schedule to stop by All's Fair to tell us about our happy divorce. You guys can get it where? Amazon? Amazon. Amazon, Amazon. anywhere books are sold. There's a great quote from a very powerful woman (laughs) on the back of the book, too. (laughs) I did endorse it. I love this book. I think it's really an important piece of whatever you might be going through in your uh, separation and leading to your next chapter. It's called, again, Our Happy Divorce, How Ending Our Marriage Brought Us Together. And when you get back to Florida, please thank Asher for the article that he shares with us on the It's Over Easy Insights blog called It Gets Better. Uh, Many thanks also to Carrie Goldberg, who joined us earlier earlier. She's the author of Nobody's Victim, Fighting Psychos, Stalkers, Pervs, and Trolls. Both of them are available on Amazon. Nobody's Victim is also available on Audible, and Our Happy Divorce is available on Google Books. Nikki and Ben, tell people where they can find you online and on the radio as it pertains to you, Ben. Uh, Everything at Our Happy Divorce, um, social media. Uh, I do do a radio show on the weekend. Uh, it's terrestrial radio. It's that thing. If you don't know, it's that thing between in your car with oh with, with the knobs, <laughs> you know, with those knobs uh, <laughs> that that say FM and AM. It's actually an FM talk formatted station. It's called the Migs and Swig Show. I mean, he talks a lot. Did I tell you? Uh, well, he does. I see he has a radio show. Right. Yes. It, it, it makes sense. That's why I like these much better than those TV things where they give you four minutes to try to get your message. <laughs> we're we're much better than television. Oh, yeah. Clearly. Right. Yes. So it's called the Migs and Swig Show. Okay. Uh, yeah. And it's on 102.5 or 107.7, which is... 102, w- 102.5. 102.5. The sorry. Bone, yeah. The Bone. In Tampa. In Tampa. TheBoneOnline.com. You will not find me on a radio station. No. In Tampa. No. You will find me at Our Happy Divorce and at Nikki DiBartolo. Okay. 
I'm Laura Wasser, attorney and host of the All's Fair podcast. You know I'm into next chapters, and I'd love to hear what you think I should read next, so leave a review on iTunes and tell me what you suggest. Thank you for listening. Let's speak next week. 